Welcome to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's about the Bills and the beer. Here's your host, John Murphy. Welcome to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. I'm John Murphy. Good to have you here today. This is already, I can't believe it, our fifth podcast. We're going to talk about the Bills. Yes, we're going to talk about the beer, too. The beer is produced by Sullivan Brewing Company in Kilkenny, Ireland. They're the sponsors, the makers of Sullivan's Maltings Irish Red Ale, Sullivan's Irish Gold Ale, and, of course, Sullivan's Black Marble Stout. It's available all over Bill's country in bars and stores. It's growing throughout the United States as well. Last week's podcast, we talked with Ian Hamilton, the master brewer of Sullivan's. He joined us from Kilkenny to talk about the beer. I want to refer you back to that. If you didn't hear it, it's worth going back in our podcast and listening to that. I had a lot of good comp- comments and compliments about Ian Hamilton, and folks said they learned a lot about brewing beer from listening to him in last week's podcast. We're going to talk about the beer on this podcast also. A brand new place just opened up in Buffalo a couple of weeks ago, Hoff Brow House Buffalo. It's at 190 Scott Street near Keybank Center in the casino downtown. The Hofbrau House concept, it's a German beer hall. Got about 16 of them around the country, and now Buffalo has one. We're going to talk with Kevin Townsell of Hofbrau House Buffalo coming up on this podcast. Also, of course, we're going to talk about the Bills and the NFL. The 4-0 Buffalo Bills getting set to match up with the 3-0 Tennessee Titans in Nashville this Sunday, if everything goes as scheduled. We'll find out. you got to be flexible, right? We're, we're uh, taping this podcast Monday afternoon. Who knows? Things might change before Sunday. We're going to talk about the Bills in the league with former Bills linebacker Lorenzo Alexander. Just retired after the playoff loss in Houston last January, the 2019 season, age 37. He's always had great insights on football. Spent 15 years as a player in the NFL. Now he's a media star. He's a broadcaster in Arizona where he lives and uh, does stuff in Washington. I think he does stuff in Oakland, does stuff in Buffalo. Lorenzo Alexander, still involved, by the way, on the executive committee of the NFL Players Association. Does a lot of good work with them. Very involved while he played, and even now with social justice initiatives. He wrote an amazing personal essay for the Athletic.com website this past summer on racial injustice, how he can fight it. We're going to talk with Lorenzo Alexander about all of that on this podcast in just a few minutes. But the Bills, we start with the Bills. They're 4-0. All the attention focused on quarterback Josh Allen for good reason. He is the AFC Offensive Player of the Month of September. He's a big reason for the Bills' success. But one other big reason for Buffalo's success, the passing offense in general. The passing offense ranked second in the NFL. Now, Allen gets credit for that, of course. And I'm not taking anything away from Josh Allen. But credit also belongs, I believe, to the Buffalo wide receiver core. Stephon Diggs. John Brown, Cole Beasley, rookie Gabriel Davis, Isaiah McKenzie, even return specialist Andre Roberts, they've all contributed really to Buffalo's amazing offense this year. They've allowed the Bills to unveil a four-wide receiver attack. Opponents are just struggling to defend it, right? It's a new-look Buffalo offense. They don't go four wides all the time, but it's certainly an integral part of what they want to do offensively. Never imagined they could run this aerial attack so well just a couple of years after having a terrible passing attack. It's testament to how Josh Allen has improved, but I think it's also testament to the great wide receivers they have on the roster. It's testament to good coaching. Brian Dable, offensive coordinator, wide receivers coach Chad Hall, the personnel department, Brandon Bean. They added uh, Diggs, Brown, Beasley, Davis the last two years. And also Sean McDermott gets some credit Let's be honest here. Did you ever think McDermott would be this comfortable with a wide-open passing attack? I didn't, (laughs) but there it is. Four games in. It's not just a game plan circumstance. This is who they are. This is what they were hoping to add to their offense, an effective passing attack 
Now they've got not just effective, they've got one of the best in the National Football League. It's really something to see. And I think the addition of Stefan Diggs is maybe the NFL's most impactful offseason addition in 2020. Now we're only four weeks in. We'll see how it plays out. But the trade for Diggs back in March was really has made a big difference for Buffalo. It's got 26 catches, including that spectacular 49-yard catch against the Raiders on Sunday. He's got great hands. You saw him fight for the ball on that play. He runs great routes. He blocks for the run game. He's been everything the Bills could hope for and more. I don't know if you saw this. Late in the first half Sunday against the Raiders, so Josh Allen injures his left shoulder when he was hit. He went to the locker room. It looked like Matt Barkley might have to come in, at least for a while. On television, they showed Stefan Diggs making his way to Matt Barkley on the bench. And what was he doing? Stefan Diggs wanted to coach him up, wanted to get him ready if he had to play. Now, there were reports out of Minnesota that cast doubts on whether Stefan Diggs was a good team player. He is. He's been great with the Buffalo Bills. An amazing scene in last Sunday's game. He is a leader. Diggs is a producer. He is a decoy occupying opposing secondaries and allowing Brown, Beasley, and others to make plays because he gets so much attention. Stephon Diggs is really one big reason why the Bills are 4-0 and why they have the second-best passing attack in the league right now. Can they get to 5-0 this week? They're supposed to face the 3-0 Tennessee Titans this Sunday in Nashville. Of course, the Titans, as you know, had a COVID outbreak. They had to postpone their game against the Steelers last Sunday. As of Monday morning, no more positive tests for the Tennessee Titans. And if they're clear again Tuesday, the Bills should be able to face them this week in Nashville. But who knows, right? Things change, and we'll see. You know, flexibility seems like it most be, might be the most important part of dealing with the pandemic in the NFL these days. We're going to talk with Lorenzo Alexander about that. He's coming up next. We'll talk about the NFL and the union's reaction to COVID. We're going to talk with him about social and racial justice. And, of course, we'll talk about the Bills right here on Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. He spent 15 years in the NFL with at least five different teams, four years with the Buffalo Bills. We're talking with uh, former Bills linebacker, now retired linebacker, Lorenzo Alexander. Lorenzo, it's really good to see you. I, re- I really miss you, I got to tell you. Yeah, I know, John. I, we've been together for the last four years. And you don't, you, I guess when you look up, you don't realize how long of a time that is, but it did fly by, and I do miss you guys as well. I was thinking that game, uh, the Bills and the Raiders, that probably would have been a likely destination for you uh, if not for COVID, huh? Yeah, I mean, me and my wife were just talking about it. We had planned on, you know, kind of carpooling uh, up to Vegas uh, with the family and uh, obviously catch up with the guys and the team. And obviously with COVID, it didn't make sense to do that because you can't see anybody with the protocols that are in place right now. So obviously that's one of the hard things was going on uh, with COVID. But, uh, you know, we, we've been making the best of it. What did you think of that game? Did you see much of it? Yeah, I've been watching the Bills games. You know, I've actually – it's been cool for me to be able to sit back and watch games from, you know, people around the league, especially the Bills, because I'm no no longer invested in the sense of, you know, we've got to win this game to set ourselves up to make the playoffs and, you know, all the little intricacies about making having busts and just – so I'm invested in it, but differently now. So it's been fun to kind of sit back, watch the guys develop, obviously see Josh in that office be dominant. Um, I, I love I love the way the defense finally stepped up yesterday, you know, stopping the run. And so it's, it's been fun to watch and, and kind of see the progression and, and have more of a coach's perspective of the game. And so it's been really cool. And then I get a chance to go watch it back on the, the All-22 and, and kind of help some of the younger guys out, you know, especially like a Tyrell um, Dotson. Yeah, so you're pretty connected with the Bills. 
after playing 15 years in all those teams, uh, you consider yourself a former Buffalo Bill or a former member of the Washington team, a former Raider, a former Arizona Cardinal. I mean, I, and, yeah. and actually, what, what position were you as you look back? Here? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I'm all those things. I'm former all those teams you just named, but I, I obviously I had the, the, the most, the biggest connection uh, with, with Buffalo um, because that was my last team, spent four years there. Being older, my family was also a part of the organization, unlike some of those other teams where it's just me. And so, you know, knowing the head coach and, and knowing the coaching staff and their kids and our kids playing together, all those players kind of help mentoring them as they come in. And so the connection is much different. The relationship with ownership was much different and the fan base. Um, I think I connected there as much as I did when I was in Washington. Um, and so, you know, I, I consider my, myself a Buffalo Bill, but I do have good relationships with all those other organizations. And as far as position, I played it you know, every single position you possibly can play. You know, started off as a D-tackle coming into the league, then went to defensive end, linebacker, had some fullback, tight end in there, outside backer, inside backer, special team. So I've done it all, seen it all. I was reading a quick biography. You, your first NFL start, you started as a tight end. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, with the, <laughs> with the Washington football team. You know, I, I made the team, and that, and that whole way I made the team, you know, that, that year leading up in 2007 when I made my first official roster, I actually came into camp as an offensive lineman. I did all of OTAs as a defensive lineman. No, 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 let me rewind. I did all of OTAs as an offensive lineman. Thought I was going to be on the offensive line. Came into camp, they said, hey, we need you to play defensive line. So I moved back to the defense. Uh, after the first week in the game, a couple of guys got hurt. And then so I moved back to offense. And so when I got my first start, I think it might have been week three or first uh, active. Might have been week three or four, I got out there, played special teams, and obviously got my first start as a, a tight end at some point during that season. You know, we're, we're kind of laughing about all the positions you played, but I got to believe that had something to do with your, your longevity, the fact that you were so versatile. You'd do and, and would, were willing yeah. to do whatever they needed you to do, huh? Yeah, it definitely helped out. Um, being able to be, a, I guess, a jack-of-all-trades, and I was able to master a few of those as far as being an outside backer, backer, special teams guy. Um, but yeah, just creating value for for our team and, and trying to fill in roles um, to help us win games. And I think it gave you know as I got better at it, it, it gave GMs and coaches uh, roster flexibility as far as you know. Hey, maybe we don't need to keep you know three tight ends. You know, especially younger in my, in my career. Hey, maybe we don't need to keep uh, five defensive ends when you know later in my career I was playing linebacker and also could rush the passer. And so it allows you to maybe keep some other guys that you really want and, and maybe a little bit more are, are better as far as developmental versus actually having to keep a roster spot based on what you want to do on game day. So it definitely, definitely helped along with my character and leadership. I think it really allowed me to extend my career and get to Buffalo when I did. I'm talking with Lorenzo Alexander, 15 years, and you mentioned how you, you enjoyed serving as a mentor for many young players. I wonder, those young players, I'm sure, asked you, uh, in your later years, what's the secret? How did you stay in the league so long? What would you tell them? What was the secret? Yeah, I mean, there's no one thing. I mean, I think there's a, a whole bunch of things that kind of overlap, uh, but it comes down to being consistent, consistent in everything that you do. You know, how you practice, how you take care of your body, um, the person you are every single day. And then I think I would, you know, wrap that all in in, in a ball of humility, you know, constantly being humility and figuring out ways you can you can grow every single day on and off the field as a person. Um, and so those are the things I would tell them. Obviously, that's kind of like a broad stroke. 
we would get into some more of the, the nitty gritty things based on who it was, where they were in their career. You know, did they have a significant other? Were they thinking about getting married? Were they, were they a dad? And so we would work on all those different things, you know, within those kind of principles I just named uh, based on, you know, uh, what they were trying to do. And so just trying to, you know, uh, speak to each person individually, but with some of those broader um, uh, principles. How difficult was it to convince a young player to, to wrap it in a ball of humility, as you said? Is, is that difficult? Um, I, I, it's, it's more difficult with certain people than other people. And I think some, some people are looking, are generally looking, trying to figure out a way how to grow and get better. And other people, I think they like the idea of talking to a vet because that's what people tell them to do. And so they try to go <laughs> find somebody and, and just to do it, right? They don't necessarily want to hear what you have to say. This is just a box they check off. Um, but I think over time, whether they are naturally humbled by the way of the game, life, uh, adversity, whatever may come up into their life, they eventually, uh, I think their heart is softened and they figure out and they mature. It's like, okay, I really do need some help. And then the, they receive it much, much better. And then I also think uh, relationships, them getting to know me and who I am over time and, and knowing that I'm not just speaking just to say stuff, but it's consistent and it, it lines up because guys are always watching whether you're in the building, out of the building, at an event, maybe you go out together. They're always watching to see how you're going to carry yourself and then what you're talking about is going to align up. And so um, I think also that helped validate um, the process as well. Uh, so with those two things, I think it was huge. And then also anytime you go out and play well, guys are trying to figure out how can I play well too. And so it, it's just even easier. So um, Things just happen to fall in line very well. You know, God blessed me with a lot of leverage, platform, and then I've been able to play as long as I did and go out there and produce every single week to then allow me to speak into the young guys' lives much easier versus trying to uh, constantly prove myself to them in, in certain ways. Speaking with uh, former Bills linebacker Lorenzo Alexander on Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. Hey, Lorenzo, you said you do a lot of media work now, and you said you look at games from a coach's perspective. Uh, as you know, scoring is way up through the first quarter of the 2020 season. Why is that? What do you yeah. think? Um, I think it does have a lot to do with um, not having an offseason. You obviously have a lot of young guys, even some, some older vets that need preseason at least to get the communication process down. And so – you know, we, we just finished week four, and so maybe this thing starts to get cleaned up a little bit. But when I watch, uh, you know, games around the league, there are a lot of mental busts. Um, obviously, defense is more reactive, and so you don't necessarily know where you're going. And so all those things, I think it's much harder to train your eyes, technique, when you, when you take away so many of those off-season OTA reps, so many of those reps from training camp. Things are slowed down, and then you don't have a game-like experience with the preseason to help uh, – uh, really um, finish those little small details off with your eyes and technique and your feet. Where offense, you know where you're going, you know what you got to do. The guys are pretty much stagnant for the most part. There's some checks and stuff. I just think it's a little bit more of a learning curve for defense um, because you are reacting and you have to be really good with your eyes and your hands and your feet. So I think that's a part of it, but it's around the league. I mean, especially when you take a look at rushing yards, I mean, it feels like everybody's giving up 100 yards every single week. Yeah. Um, I know uh, the Bills were able to, to, to maintain uh, uh, Josh Jacobs last week, but 
just looking around the league, everybody seems every week 100, 150. You know, it's just crazy how what it looks like. But I think a lot of that has to do with the preseason. You know, um, so you bring up the Bills, and uh, we got accustomed to really good defenses for the Bills, and especially the, the first three years of Sean McDermott's tenure here. You were here for all three years. Should we forget about that? I mean, there have been some people gone. You were gone. Kyle Williams left a couple of years ago. Is it a totally different cast of characters, or is there something else yeah. at stake for the Bills on defense? Um, I think there, I mean, there is a new group. I mean, it's especially along the defensive line. I mean, it's, it's probably at least, at least four guys. I really don't even know. Um, and so you interject that, 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 those new group of guys, uh, you know, you, you interject AJ Klein, um, who uh, another linebacker is not, his name is not coming to me right now. And then you have, um, Josh Norman on the back end. Um, so there's at least, you know, seven or eight, new guys that I didn't even play with just from last year. And now they're all trying to learn this defense without an off season, without a real uh, preseason or training camp. And so, like I said, it, defenses look like it's suffered the most. And so now you're trying to mesh all of these new uh, players, characters, you know, personalities, how they play games where, you know, you remove star uh, lately from, from the lineup as well. And, and now you have to learn, relearn how guys rush, you know, like the front four. How do you rush in a game? Or if I'm a linebacker, how, how, are, how are some of these defensive tackles playing blocks? You know, where if I've been used to star being in front of me the whole time, I know what he's going to do. I know how to flow better. Um, you know, how are guys going to handle me or Tremaine or Matt or whoever on the sideline handle correction when we're talking? How do they change? So all those things that you kind of get – um, at least a handle on during the preseason, you don't, you, I mean, you don't have, you know, you just kind of been going through practice as normal. And uh, those little things, I think that make a difference as far as making adjustments, making corrections, and then, you know, being able to make plays. Um, you know, I think you, you take it for granted a little bit because you've done it for so long. You're like, ah, we don't really need preseason, but yeah, you kind of do uh, to help you work on some of those little intricacies that really help you become a, a really good uh, football team. Um, especially here on defense. And I wonder what you think of this. I was thinking about the game against the win against the Raiders, how the Bills came up with two takeaways in, in the fourth quarter, you know, with yeah. a strip sack by Quentin Jefferson and earlier before that, Josh Norman with his uh, force fumble. Maybe that's a way to play defense, an effective way to get things done defensively in today's NFL, huh? Yeah, I mean, I think and that's significant. And I think if you kind of, you know, look at the the first – three weeks prior to, to that so, uh, area they struggled. They did have an interception by Levi and I think another fumble, but there was never multiple opportunities. And they had another one that should have been called too. Uh, I don't know who stripped it, but they said that the prog forward progress, right. which, I, you know, so right. that is something that that is probably one of the biggest pieces of this defense that has been missing until last week is getting punches, getting the ball out on the ground, giving yourself opportunities uh, to scoop and score and give Josh and, and them another opportunity to obviously put points on the board. And so I think when you start creating those turnovers, limiting those drives, those are yards or hitting yards or however you want to um, identify them that you start taking off of the board when it comes to rushing and passing yards because you are creating those turnovers and, and getting your, the ball back to your offense. And so it was, it was really good to see that to start to happen. They normally happen in bunches. And so maybe, you know, with uh, Josh Norman really starting that off, being the bell cow of that, maybe that starts generating now, now that he's back in the lineup because that's, you know, sometimes just a person, you know, 
they inspire other people like uh, uh, Peanut Tillman, you know, right? So he's always, and everybody's trying to do it now. Oh, they got one out. Oh, I got to get one out. And so when you start creating that environment, normally it's led by one guy. And so hopefully Josh Norman is able to continue to bring that um, to the lineup and to the defense week in and week out. And that'll really start, uh, I think, changing the trajectory or the expectation or the standard where these guys uh, should be or expect to be versus where they've been at the, the last three weeks. Lorenzo Alexander, you're four games into your first season out of the NFL in, what, 16 years. Uh, uh, fill us in. What are you doing out there in Arizona? A lot of media work, I see, right? Yeah, doing a lot of media work, uh, working with several different uh, teams. You know, just fortunate to have built great relationships. So I'm still doing stuff with uh, the, the Bills, working with the Washington, doing some NBC Washington post game of, uh, of the Washington football team, um, covering some Arizona Cardinals as well. Um, doing another podcast for the Bills. So I'm just kind of all over the place doing a lot of stuff, staying engaged into the game, which is really cool and, and it's been fun. Uh, but I've really been enjoying coaching my kids too. Uh, we uh, do a flag football right now, um, you know, just working out, hanging out, uh, taking a trip up this week to, to go up to the Grand Canyon, which I would normally wouldn't be able to do during the season. Sure. Uh, so, so you know, it's fun. And then uh, the best of all, I get to wake up on Monday morning feeling great, you know, <laughs> be able to stretch my legs, get up, walk around, and, and not feel bumps and bruises. Yeah, that's got to be a relief. Uh, you're still on the executive committee of the NFL Players Association, and i got to ask you this. I've really been it's, – it's early in the COVID – fight and you know things happen a lot this past week but i've been impressed with the way the union the pa has worked alongside the the league in getting rules yeah. uh, passed and, and kind of yeah. you know, just handling it and who knows what lies ahead but i think the league's the right. and the league's done a pretty good job yeah yeah and you know what and i think it's because that covid uh doesn't discriminate right it's not a it's not a money issue who gets more of this or or, or who has the leverage here it impacts everybody the same way and so i think from the beginning um, even though, you know, money plays a part in it, I think people eventually say, oh, we got, we got to follow the science. And I think some of it helped in the sense that obviously players caught COVID, you had some ownerships catch COVID, and then the ramifications of what that meant for their body and what some people had to go through. I think about Michael Bidwell, who had to go through, I think he was in the ICU for four or five days. And so when you have experiences like that, it's no longer about creating protocols or rules that are going to be beneficial to your bottom line, it becomes, okay, I have an experience of what this really feels like. Let's make sure we put protocols in place that are going to protect uh, the people working in our organization from players to staff members to coaches um, because you have an experience, a shared experience. And so I think that's why it's been so cohesive as far as players and ownership moving forward because we've all at some level, players' ownership have had to deal with this um, pandemic um, in, a, in, in a bad way for some people, you know, whether they've been hospitalized, people have lost family members because of it. And so trying to make sure that we do the best for our organizations and, commun and communities with these protocols. And so we're, kind of, we're, we're definitely aligned in that, in that idea and mission. It strikes me, especially this week and maybe this past weekend, that uh, the key is flexibility. Teams and players have to be flexible. Oh, we're not playing Sunday. We're playing Monday. We're not playing this game now. Right. We're playing it in November. You just got to be ready to adapt, I think. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. It's just one of those things of 2020. You have to be flexible and be able to uh, adapt and uh, adjust accordingly uh, because week to week things can change so drastically. Um, as we saw with the Tennessee Titans, um, 
and, and what the, those ramifications had, not only for them, but some even some other games and have some other teams having to move their bye weeks as well so that they can accommodate these changes. And so guys just have to continue to be flexible and really diligent about uh, adhering to the protocols and always trying to put themselves in the safest uh, environment possible. And we all understand that this virus moves on its own, but you know, you, we can all mitigate risk by limiting the amount of times we go to the grocery store, go out, uh, you know, all those little types of things that is hard to do. Um, but in order to get through this season and through this pandemic, uh, we, we have to do. Um, and so I think guys have generally been doing a good job with that. Um, you know, you do hear your stories about teams being investigated, but overall, I think most people are trying to do this, um, the best way they can with the protocols that have been in place. Renzo, the last thing I want to address to you a little bit is uh, social justice, racial justice. I got to tell you, I was always impressed uh, the way you kind of led the way, what, three, four years ago in the middle of the Colin Kaepernick protests, how people were right. uh, up in arms about who's kneeling, who's standing for the anthem, et cetera. And you, it seemed to me, led the way for the Bills to say, okay, we'll sort that out, but we're really going to make an important contribution to our community, to Buffalo. And, right. and you started it, and it goes on now. And I think that's probably – I mean, images are, are, are fine, uh, standing, uh, kneeling, whatever, right. that's fine. But it really is important what you do and not just what you, you – you Right. Say, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think it takes all of those things. I don't think one thing is more important than the other, but you have to first obviously bring awareness to an issue. Um, and then once you bring the awareness, you want to always keep it in the forefront uh, until things start to change. And so you have to continually do that. But while you are, you know, bringing awareness, talking about it, protesting, whatever that may look like for you personally. And, I, you know, some people don't want to necessarily kneel. Some people stand. But that, that doesn't matter to me. You bring an awareness. Great. Uh, secondly, then you have to move into a position of, OK, what are the action items? that we want to achieve. And that could be different from city to city, team to team. Things, you know, and, and communities are, are different at the, at the local level. Um, there, there are some overlapping issues, obviously like police brutality or community police relationships that you want to see change nationally. Um, but then, you know, attacking those things and, you know, having clear objectives. And that's what we try to do uh, with our social justice initiative there in Buffalo, figuring out people that we could serve, uh, raising money and try to sh uh, close that that um, that social equity gap that 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 we see in so many of uh, of our inner cities, and then also you know challenging uh, our elected officials to come alongside of us and let's come up with uh, positive ways to change policies that make sense and fair for everyone. Um, and so, you know, you have to do in doing that process, you have to understand where you come from. How did we get here? But then once we understand that, let's move on and let's focus on changing these things and not necessarily harping on uh, our country's past transgressions. But you have to you have to go through all those processes in order to get to a real solution because there has to be understanding from everybody. And so that's what we've, we've tried to do collectively, obviously. People have different thought processes of the right way or how to do it or what you should be focused on. Um, but if we are all truly, you know, I guess, geared towards a better America, uh, a better environment for all, um, I think that's what we have to focus on. Not necessarily the way we get there, uh, but our, the goal and that people are going to do it differently. Um, and then and then obviously there's always going to be 
individuals or groups that are just naysayers and are going to stay where they're at. And I, I, I don't, you don't have enough energy to deal with those groups. So you just try to stay positive, find people that are trying to be allies in, in the process and get things corrected for, for people as, as best you can. And I want the listeners to this podcast know about a, an essay you wrote for the website, The Athletic, theathletic.com, back in the summer, back when the George Floyd uh, protests were, uh, were kind of up and, and, and things were a little bit crazy. But I thought it was important. You said, uh, for your sake, you're, you're no longer going to stay in my lane, you wrote. And you said, uh, this is an all hands on deck uh, moment. What did you mean there? Right. What do you mean by not staying in your lane? Um, I think it's really easy for, uh, for people and individuals to to work on one side, right? And so just to serve kids in the community because people need help. And so you're never going to get any pushback from that, right? Uh, oh, yes, we need help. Oh, they're doing great work in the community. They're serving kids. Those are less fortunate. These are the communities they came from. You know, those things always look great because you really, everybody, it's easy to get behind that. Um, most people want to help other people that are struggling for whatever reason. Um, but when you kind of get out of that lane and then you start challenging the powers that be or policy or systems or structures that have been in place for a long time, then you start pushing on other people's reality or truths. That's when it gets a lot harder. And so um, through education, uh, through sharing my, my perspective, um, and I think collectively, you know, trying to create some change, you know, in, in policy and in politics that are going to allow the reality of the, the young people and the communities and families that we're serving in inner city, um, not to have to rely on, um, on aid. Right. And so eventually we want to get to a place to where this is not even a really a big need. And so not only do I need to help them and serve them and help educate them about how they can get, get out of poverty or, maybe uh, go to school and get education. You also need to have the systems that have traditionally uh, oppressed them in some type of way or prevented them or made them go around the long way and back and come back. You need to have those changed as well. So then that you get a smoother track as far as helping people. But when you start talking about changing policy and politics and all that, it just gets muddy. People disagree. And that gets a little bit more divisive and polarized. And so uh, I think most people, I know a lot of my friends try to stay away from that because obviously in the football world, you never want to be a distraction. Um, you never want to, um, you know, just be, create uh, d- divisiveness. But in order to create change, you have to kind of get in there and actually speak your truth and, and try to bring some type of perspective to it to maybe hopefully the way you say it, maybe your words, maybe your leadership will get, will galvanize people to create some change. And so just using that uh, on both ends. And so that's what I mean by getting out of my lane, because it's very easy to, hey, I'm going to go serve kids today and hang out with them because they're going to love hanging out with a football player. It's, yeah. it's cool, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I have to be, I have to be okay. And I, you know, try to challenge other people and some of my friends that are, that are in that world as well. To, to get uncomfortable. And you see a lot of guys around the league um, and all the leagues really, um, and just people in general, really starting to do that and try to have their voices heard and, and provide their perspective. Lorenzo, thanks for this. It's always great to hear your insights on social justice on the NFL and on the Buffalo Bills. Hope we can do it again sometime. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you, John. Anytime, miss you, guy. And uh, hopefully you and uh, the grandbabies are doing, doing great. <laughs> We're doing well. Thanks. <laughs> 
You're listening to Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff with your host, John Murphy. Hofbrauhaus House Buffalo is open on Scott Street in Buffalo. We're joined on the line by the man behind Hofbrauhaus House Buffalo, Kevin Townsell. Kevin, congratulations. How does it feel to finally be open? Great, John. Thank you. Um, it feels fantastic to be open. It's been a six-year-long project so far, and so finally we're able to to get it started. It feels fantastic. I would imagine in the six years that you waited, uh, you probably got a sense of how eagerly people were anticipating Hofbrau House Buffalo, right? There are a lot of people waiting for this to happen. Yeah. Well, it's um, a, a lot of Buffalonians have been to Germany, and if you go to Germany, you have to go to the Hofbrau House in, in Munich, and most people do. So it's uh, a lot of people have been there, or they've been to one of the other Hofbrau Houses around the U.S. So tell me the concept behind Hofbrau House. Uh, uh, what what happens there, and what what makes it a special place, Kevin? Well, it's um, it's big. There's a thousand seats inside and another four hundred seats outside, um, and a very traditional beer hall with long tables and benches, kind of communal seating. If if you've got a group of four, you may end up sitting with another group of four <laughs> that you've never met before on a long table. Um, but music every night, German music, and uh, um, sing-alongs and, uh, you know, kind of fun. The ladies' um, servers are wearing dirndls and uh, the bartenders and the guys are wearing lederhosen and uh, jumping around and singing songs and having fun. What do you, is it the atmosphere or is it the beer? What do you think attracts people to Hofbrau House, Kevin? Yeah, the atmosphere. It's, I mean, we, we do make our own beer on premise, and and it's uh, it's all we serve. It, it, it Hofbrau um, recipes from Munich. So these are five hundred year old uh, recipes, and they they work. Uh, that they're, they're time tested. Um, so they're traditional German lagers mostly, and uh, so people enjoy them, and and that's a big part of it. But it's an atmosphere thing, too, um, with, uh, you know, kind of noisy and fun and music and, and um, you know, people laughing. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a neat setup. Kevin, can you describe the beer? What, uh, I guess, three beers do you brew there at Hofbrau House? Well, we're going to be always, we'll always have three staples. Um, our, our lager, our dunkel, which is the dark beer. And our wheat beer, our Hefeweizen. So those three will always be available. And then we've got about 18 other uh, seasonal uh, beers that we rotate through the year. And every month we'll have a keg tapping with, with another of those seasonals. Um, anything from Bach to uh, Dunkelweizens to Doppelbachs and Mertens and Oktoberfests and Lots of different um, German styles. I would imagine your servers have to be well-trained and, and ready to kind of walk some of the patrons through the beer selections, huh? Right. It's, um, uh, they, they aren't yet. Right. <laughs> we're, all, we're all just getting started. And we just got our license a week ago, so we're, uh, we started brewing right away. But we're, um, in, in the meantime, while those beers are aging, we're... Um, pouring beer from Munich, the Hofbrau in Munich. Uh, so we have their 
uh, Hefeweizen and Oktoberfest and original lager that we're pouring now. What about food, Kevin? What's on the menu at Hofbrauhaus? House? Well, right now we've got a limited menu, and we're only serving outside. Uh, we've got a big beer garden and patio and tent that uh, for the band, and we're we're serving sausages from um, uh, our friends at Wardinsky's went over and actually got uh, qualified with the Hofbrauhaus people in Munich to to uh, use their recipes to make uh, sausages just for us. So we've got um, several sausages on, on the limited menu and some leverkats, which is uh, which is a sausage loaf, um, and pretzels, and that's about it. So it's a, it's a limited, fast menu uh, using a grill out on the patio and, um, and the beer, uh, a little bit of wine and liquor, but, uh, but mostly beer. Yeah. It strikes me that your location, 190 Scott Street, downtown Buffalo, and if folks don't know, you're right down the street from Key Bank Center and almost right across the street from the uh, casino. That's a good place to be for the future, I would think, Kevin. Yeah, uh, we're on Scott in Michigan. Um, just, uh, you know, I'm looking out the window upstairs here, and you see the Skyway and the Canal Side, Cobblestone, uh, and all the arenas. So it's we're right in the middle of everything. Um and it's a it's a good place to be bustling. There's a lot of parking around us. We don't have any of our own parking, but there's five thousand cars uh, with a parking available. Uh, so it's a it's a neat and growing and bustling uh, area. Kevin, you've been involved in in brewing in Buffalo and in, in beer pubs for years. In fact, uh, I think the first endeavor was Buffalo Brew Pub at Main and Transit. What uh, uh, thirty or more years ago, right? Yep, uh, yep. I started that in 1986, um, and that's still in uh, in the family. My nephews run uh, run the brew uh, pub, uh, and it's uh, it was maybe the 15th or something brew uh, pub in the country. Now it's one of five or six thousand, um, but it's uh, it's also the oldest brew pub in New York State. So that's kind of cool, and and it's going, uh, doing well, and and staying busy. But then I also got involved with um, starting the Shannon Pub uh, in '82, uh, and uh, so we had a few different locations uh, for the Irish music. What what's um, what was the atmosphere like back then, uh, Kevin? You know, mid '80s as far as craft brew and and people trying new new beers. What was it like then, and how does it compare to the way it is now? Well, we were um, uh, when we opened the brew pub in '86. It was uh, we brewed our own beer, but also had another 25 or 30 tap handles from uh, European beers that we were able to find that not many people had. Um, Guinness Harp and Bass and Smittics and things like uh, Watneys and uh, Bass. Uh, I said Bass Watneys and and some others that uh, you know if you. If you pour a lot of them and keep it fresh, they taste great. Um, but it was, um, uh, you know, it was kind of early and new to have uh, go outside of the Budweiser and um, Miller Highlight line in '86, and obviously it's changed a lot since then. What do you think made a change? What did, what got into people to try to be open to trying new beers? I, you know, I, it's, uh, it was generational. Um, my parents would have, uh, 
you know, grew up on carrying black label, and they were very happy with that. And bottles, not draft, and um, no thanks. I don't want to try whatever you're trying to sell me. And then, then the page turned. I don't know with with people who are now, I guess, fifty uh, or younger, um, started looking for you know other ideas when Sam Adams came in and um, and and people in. Um, California, Oregon, and Washington, they spearheaded the, the craft brewing move, movement, and those beers found their way to Buffalo, uh, you know, across the country eventually. And uh, so there were options. Um, one of the big things was that the distributors, the beer distributors, were tied to, you know, um, Budweiser and Isaac Bush, um, Coors and Miller, and, and they had obligations with them to concentrate on those brands. Um, so when they they um, were convinced over time that that there was uh, a demand for a fuller flavor, um, they started to talk to contract brewers, and, and it's been very successful. Yeah, Kevin, uh, who's the target audience for Hofbrau House? Who do you think this might appeal to most? Well, the neat neat part about this is it's a um, uh, it's multi generational. If you're if you uh, it's one of the few places that you could bring your mom and your grandma and your kids, and still everybody would have a good time. It's uh, I suppose every restaurant owner tries to say that, but I'm saying, <laughs> but it's it, it's fun for everyone, and and uh, it it's not a uh, drink and drown situation. It's a, um, you know, have fun and smile and sing along and, and toast a beer, but also some great food and, and, um, it just, it just kind of, um, a good atmosphere. So you're open now until what, 10 o'clock every night and you open up at noon on the weekend, right? Yeah. Noon on the weekends four four during the week. And we've been busy. There's, uh, uh, we've had people waiting to waiting for tables just about every day in the week that we've been open. So it's a great start, and the support is wonderful. And uh, uh, we're still only using the outside seating, um, and, and that pressure once we get inside will will uh, go away. I hope. Um, but we're going to be probably another four or five weeks outside only until the inside's ready and the, we can go to the full menu and um and make it happen in there well i i hope it does kevin thanks for joining us and uh, good luck with this thank you john i appreciate it we'll talk soon yep kevin townsville half okay. house buffalo 190 scott street in buffalo Well, that'll do it for this week's podcast, the Sullivan's Pro Football Podcast. We thank you for tuning in today. I want to thank Kevin Townsell, and best of luck to his Hofbrau House Buffalo, now open at 190 Scott Street. I want to thank Lorenzo Alexander. You know, I've said it the last several years. He is one of, if not the most thoughtful, honest, forward-thinking players I've ever come across 
in my 35 or more years covering the Buffalo Bills. I see great things ahead for Lorenzo. Yes, his football career is likely over, most likely over, but at age 37, he's got a great future ahead, and I want to thank him once again for joining us uh, on the podcast. We're brought to you by Sullivan's Brewing Company of Kilkenny, Ireland, makers of Malting's Irish Red Ale, Sullivan's Gold Ale, and Sullivan's Black Marble Stout. It's available in bars, taverns, and stores all over upstate New York, in New Jersey, in Pittsburgh, New York City, Atlanta, and Savannah, Georgia, growing all the time. Thanks to our producer, Pat Feldball. We'll see you next time right here on Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. You've been listening to John Murphy and the Sullivan's Pro Football Kickoff. It's all about the bills and the beer.